Hello, and you're listening to Eco Justice Radio. My name is J.P. Morris, and today we have an interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge. She'll be talking to Nick Lapis, Director of Advocacy for Californians Against Waste. Since joining the organization in 2007, Nick has led several campaigns to enact nation-leading waste reduction legislation and regulatory action in California. In addition to coordinating CAW's overall advocacy strategy, Nick leads the organization's efforts to reduce the impacts of climate change and recover organic waste. He also engages in policy development and coalition building, representing CAW on a variety of boards, committees, workgroups, and coalitions. So let's get on with this interview. You're listening to Eco Justice Radio. Aldridge from SoCal 350. Our show today is called The State of Recycling, How California Legislation is Driving New Standards. California is known as being a leader in setting environmental standards and passing precedent-setting legislation that the rest of the country looks to for inspiration and emulation. Since the 1990s, California has been setting a high bar for waste diversion and recycling in the United States. This September, Governor Brown picked up his pen and he signed off on his last set of bills under his reign as governor. Governor Brown had the opportunity to approve or veto a significant amount of historic waste and recycling legislation. Many of us probably heard about one law in particular, the first statewide law to require trials upon request, but this most recent round of legislation approval also brought with it a slew of other waste policies that protect environment and human health while building the necessary groundwork to move forward in a new recycling paradigm. Given the recent global shift in the recycling market, China placing strict contamination limitations on recycling imports, the needs for recycling solutions can't focus only on consumer behavior, but more importantly, we must focus on design changes, manufacturer and product responsibility, and overall reduction. Our guest today is advocating at the state and local levels to create, promote, and implement the standards and policies necessary for waste reduction and recycling. It is my pleasure to welcome Nick Lapis, Director of Advocacy for Californians Against Waste. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Jessica. Yeah, this is a really interesting topic for me. I want to know everything that's been happening and, and get caught up. Um, but before we jump in, uh, can you please tell our listeners a little bit about Californians Against Waste and how that came about? Yeah, so we're an environmental organization based in Sacramento. Uh, we've been around since 1977. Uh, we work on statewide legislation for the most part, although we also do a lot of local ordinances and at the community level as well. Uh, originally, we were founded around passing a bottle bill in California, so a deposit system for bottles and cans. Since then, we've moved on to work on a lot of other issues, including uh, most recently plastic bags, um, uh, electronic waste recycling, tire recycling, a variety of other issues as well. That's great. And waste is becoming this increasingly popular topic right now. I mean, you see it all over social media. I think there's a, a movement that's been building that really wasn't around 15 years ago, 10 years, or even five years ago. And you and I have been at this in the waste industry for quite a while. There's this desire for education and action that I feel is going to force the hands of corporations and government and the industry to to change and for for real solutions to be had. I really think it's it's prime time for that. And I think that CAW is kind of leading a little bit on that front. 
Yeah, I mean, I think people are really beginning to feel like we're drowning in the sea of, of, of stuff that we're surrounded with. Everything you buy comes in more and more packaging. The more stuff you order online, it comes in these big boxes that come, you know, they're way bigger than they need to be for the size of the item that's being shipped. And more and more things are made to be throwaway, disposable, single use. And people realize that that's not a sustainable way to go about life. You can't just keep mining new resources, extracting oil, making new products, and then throwing them away after you use them for five minutes. Yeah, seconds sometimes, right? Yeah. So before we speak to the broader solutions and the issues and what direction we should be heading, I want to review the recently passed legislation that's specific to waste, you know, because Jerry Brown just, that was the last set of laws that he was going to sign off on before he's no longer governor of California. So the first law that I think is probably the most popular because I think it got national, I know it got national headlines, is the AB 1884, Straws Upon Request, um, that requires sit-down restaurants in California that they can't automatically give you a straw. That got national attention, but there's some misnomers behind that because there's, they said, oh, the waiters aren't going to care fees, They're, they might get jail time, uh, that it's a ban on straws. And then and then there's also the flip side. I think everyone thinks it's a straws upon request for all businesses. So can you clear up some of those misnomers? Yeah, it's actually funny watching all of these national uh, televised shows that uh, talk about this issue as being a ban. That's far from a ban. It's basically a requirement that at a sit-down restaurant, at a restaurant where a server actually comes and takes your order and gives you a menu, that they ask you before they give you a straw. Uh, that's not unreasonable. It probably should be standard practice anyway. It's kind of like the water, right? That Do you want a glass of water? I think that's the model. That's exactly the model. Um, you know, straws are a pretty small issue in some ways. In other ways, they're a really big issue. Um, and I think uh, the, the, the main thing about the straw legislation is that it's not about straws. It's about becoming more aware of all the single-use plastic that we consume every single day that we're not aware of. Because for most of us, even those of us who really care about sustainability, we get a straw in our water and we don't even notice it. Yeah. But that straw is going to be around forever. And so we drank from it for, again, five minutes and maybe with the refill, you got a new straw. <laughs> and by becoming more aware of that lasting impact of that consumption, you start noticing other plastic that you're consuming, the cutlery, the uh, to-go cups, et cetera. Do you think that this legislation helps build that environment so that, you know, there's going to be for the reduction of other single-use plastic um, pollution as well as like policies banning other free giveaways like those utensils? Yeah, actually, I really like the way Jerry Brown phrased it in his signing message. Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, I recommend Googling Jerry Brown signing message on AB 1884. But his closing, his closing statement, if you don't mind, I'll read it. Yes. It says, uh, it's a very small step to make a customer who wants a plastic straw ask for it. And it might make them pause and think about an alternative. But one thing is clear. We must find ways to reduce and eventually eliminate single-use plastic products. And I think that's what it's about. It's about rethinking our consumption of plastic. It's not just about straws. It's not just about uh, the dining environment. Yeah, it's about the whole entire thing and broadening out that broadening out that message. And then also having a win because 
having those wins as an environmentalist, as is anyone um, that's been fighting for something for so long to have a win to say, we got this one. And, and taking that momentum and moving forward and being able to put that into the next piece of legislation, the next campaign, the next ask. Yeah, and in some ways, it's really a capstone for Jay Brown on several bills he signed over the years. Uh, he signed the state plastic bag ban. He signed the ban on plastic microbeads, which are uh, little bits of plastic that were added to toothpaste and other personal care products. Um, he signed a few other bills this year as well, which I don't know if you want to talk yeah. about them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's it's really building that drumbeat of rethinking our addiction to plastic. Exactly. And that brings us to SB 1335, which is the sustainable food packaging law that says requiring only reusable, recyclable, or compostable food packaging at state-owned facilities. Now, I heard pushback from the environmental community that may or may not sort of understood the depth of this law saying this isn't just doesn't go far enough why aren't we just doing an all-out ban why can't we ban things like foam but it does have a pretty large impact doesn't it yeah i mean if you look at the scale of state procurement uh, we're talking about state universities community colleges state parks state beaches fairgrounds there are actually a lot of, of facilities all over the state that would be covered and the really cool thing about this bill is that it's not a simplistic ban saying don't use X. Because the problem with that approach is, you know, you might get rid of a bad product, but you could end up with a regrettable substitution of something that also has impacts. It says that you can only use takeout food packaging that's recyclable or compostable. And that doesn't just mean that you can put it in your blue bin or your green bin or whatever color your garbage company <laughs> uses. Um, if you look at the way the law is actually written, it says that it's got to be compatible with your curbside collection program. It's got to be compatible with the recycling sorting system that your garbage company uses. It's got to have markets. And it's got to have uh, no toxic chemicals, not pose a danger to wildlife, and uh, uh, not be prone to litter. And so that's really a comprehensive look at what we should be using for takeout food packaging as opposed to banning one product after another. And really, it's a model, I think, for for uh, all takeout food packaging. How about all packaging? Yeah. I mean, that's sort of what it comes down to. Shouldn't everything be recyclable or compostable? In the market in which it's in. Right. And, and then the other thing that, you know, I think with this, because they have such a large purchasing power, that if there's a product on the market that is that is good, that, that maybe is recyclable in a lot of markets or is compostable, but maybe it's brand new to the market. And so it's maybe a little unaffordable or it there's not enough of it. Being able to say that the um, state-owned facilities, because they have such large purchasing power, it then makes increases availability of that product, increases the affordability of that product because now the, the price of that product can, get, can come down. And it also increases the acceptance of that product because more people are using it. Right. I mean, that's part of the brilliance, I think, of, of this bill uh, and why I actually think Senator uh, Ben Allen did such an amazing job on this legislation, that it's really the state imposing a requirement on itself. And it's hard for any industry to be mad at the state for imposing a requirement on itself. But at the same time, it's that foot in the door for, for broader policy. It's also a procurement of a lot of material to drive the market. Uh, in many ways, it's a really great step. So one of the other, um, a couple other pieces of legislation before we get into this broad conversation of solutions and next steps are the microplastic 
laws, but there's two of them. There was a statewide strategy law that was SB 1263. And then there's one that says that the state has to start testing drinking water. That one's SB 1422. Yeah, there's increasing research out there that uh, these tiny bits of plastic are being found all over our environment, the so-called microplastics. And microplastics are, are basically plastics that are five millimeters or less in size. And the more researchers from different universities test whether it's seafood, it's tap water, it's bottled water, it's soil, uh, every time they test something, they found they find huge numbers of these microplastics and increasing numbers. And some of that pioneering research has come out of California, specifically with the Scripps Institute, and the Brent School, UC Davis, a few other universities. And it's really shocking because we don't know what impact that plastic is going to have on us. We know it's in the food we consume. We know it's in the water we drink. But we don't know what the effect of, of plastic building up in our bodies will be on our, on our health in the long term, what toxins might be attached to that plastic when it comes into our body. It's really this, this huge experiment that we're doing on ourselves. And this is... This is a law that's taking that precautionary approach to say we're gonna we're gonna test for this, and make sure that this material, this, these microplastics, this toxic material, does not make it into our water as we do for other materials as well. Yeah, people have a right to know what's in their drinking water. Yes, and uh, that's all that this uh, one legislation piece of legislation says. It's we're gonna test drinking water, and if we determine that there is a need to inform consumers of excess levels of plastic, we will. Um, but really, that's just sort of foot in the door. We know what the causes of, of a lot of this plastic pollution uh, is. We know we have to take action to reduce it. Uh, 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 polyester clothing is a major source of this microplastic pollution. So things like uh, fleece jackets, a lot of the athletic wear, you don't realize that you're you're wearing this jacket, but when you throw it into the washing machine, there's really no filter that can capture that tiny bit of plastic, at least no commercially available filter. And they say 60% of the clothing on average that we have in our closet, 60% is made of polyfibers, plastic fibers. Uh, one of the other pieces of legislation, because I definitely want to get to the solution section here, um, that I'm really proud of, I'm excited about, because it's taken eight years and nine county ordinances to get to this point is the Sharps and Pharmaceuticals Take Back Program, which is SB 212, that was pushed through through with um, California Product Stewardship Council and then also the support of uh, CAW, California's Against Waste. And uh, that's a take back program for, for, for pharmaceuticals and for Sharps, correct? Yeah. And Sharps, for folks who don't, don't know, are, are needles. So everything from... Uh, uh, hyperdermic needles to EpiPens to folks who have to inject themselves with insulin. And right now there is no good system for getting that back. And it ends up, uh, you know, sometimes in the recycling system. And when it ends up in the recycling system, there are workers on the recycling lines who get stuck. Uh, if it ends up in the landfills that there are groundwater impacts, et cetera. The cool thing about this bill is that it is completely industry funded. And so it basically requires the industry to set up a, a take-back program for, for, for pills and for needles at pharmacies and other locations all over the state. Uh, it's not a fee on consumers. It's directly funded by the industry. 
it's a groundbreaking piece of legislation. Like you said, it was driven by this uh, set of local ordinances around the state that really, uh, really came out of frustration, I think, from local governments that they were stuck with this material. They couldn't do anything about it. And manufacturers weren't taking responsibility. And so they started passing local laws saying, manufacturers, you have to take care of this material. It's affecting our workers. It's affecting our environment. And I think that brought the manufacturers to the table to negotiate a statewide policy. And there's some great organizations that worked on this. Yes, including the California Product Stewardship Council. Um, so the the this legislation puts the responsibility back on the producer, like with the take-back programs. Um, the, so the producer of the goods or larger purchasing entities of those goods, like, like the state of California, all of which, all that stuff eventually becomes waste. Recently, I watched a video that covered it covered the Seattle straw ban. It talked about composting bioplastics, and then it went into like plastic eating bacteria. But then there was never discussion about upstream focus on the producer or the supplier. Wherein lies the corporate responsibility for this product? I mean, you're really touching on what I think is the most important. Uh, uh, part of all of this SB212 and the other policies we've talked about, and that's really putting the onus on the manufacturers. If you're going to put something out into the marketplace that is not compatible with our recycling system, that's not compatible with our composting system, then it's on you to figure out a way to get that back to ensure that those costs are not borne by everybody else. It's really the term we use is producer responsibility, but really it's polluter pays. If you're the one who's the source of this form of pollution, you should be the one who bears the cost to clean it up, not everybody else. Not the consumer who's buying it because they really don't have any other choice. They buy it because, oh, I'm, I'm buying this thing to eat or I'm buying my computer or I'm buying whatever. But they they don't they don't control the and you know where this stuff goes. And then the processors, the recycling facilities, they they have the process that they're using. They're not trying to say, okay, let me make the market for you. Yeah, and and uh, you know there, there's the. Uh, disproportionate impacts of the fact that we all bear the cost of, of, of the impacts of these products. There's also just the fact that if the manufacturer doesn't have to internalize that cost, then that doesn't even factor into the design decisions they make. There are a lot of choices you can make about what types of plastic you use. Some plastic is very compatible with our recycling system. Some isn't. If there's absolutely no connection between the manufacturer and the end of life of the product, and there's no incentive to use the more recyclable plastic or to use adhesives that are more compatible with our recycling system or to reduce the amount of packaging that you use for a product. The decisions now are being made based on how a product will look on the shelf, what will be eye-catching, yes. um, a million, million other things, but the, the end of life. If it looks sustainable. If it looks sustainable, right. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you hear about these companies where They've literally realized that they can make their product look uglier and maybe add some brown paint to it, and they will sell more because people will think it's an environmentally friendly product, even though it's not any better. Um, and, and that's why you've really got to connect the producers and the manufacturers to the end-of-life costs. Yes. Do you think that I, – I know you get this question all the time, and we hear it on on – uh, the news, too, where people come out and fight and say, you know what, I, I get your regulations, but, you know, businesses, we can regulate ourselves. We can do this. You need to believe in us. Do you believe in them? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's, that's a softball question. 
<laughs> Obviously, we wouldn't have to do any legislation if that were the case. That said, uh, th there is a role for businesses that if they don't want to be regulated to step up and, and really take responsibility for their products, and then they will not be regulated. And we've seen that over and over uh, in different categories where, where the, the manufacturers have come together, funded uh, recycling programs, funded disposal programs. So yes, they have that option. I, I don't think they've taken full advantage of it. <laughs> And where are we going with this plastic legislation? Are, are we going to keep legislating each plastic type, or is there bigger end goals? Yep, each plastic type. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, I, I think we're beginning to have some conversations around the movement uh, around this issue. And the, the more I talk to people, the more I realize that really we're going to have to rethink plastic. Uh, you know, it started off as as a sort of byproduct of producing oil and gas, and now it's actually a driver for extracting more oil and gas. the The consumption of plastic is driving our, our our fracking infrastructure, our oil recovery infrastructure. It's something that's not sustainable. It's growing at an unsustainable pace, and at some point, we're going to have to say, "Hey, we can't have any more plastic." That's not to say that we can't use plastic for anything. But we can't keep growing at an infinite rate. I think that there's a good analogy with the climate uh, climate regulations, and that in you know in the way we regulate climate, as we've said, we're going to cap the amount of greenhouse gases that we can release, and then we're going to ratchet that down over time. And I think we need to think about plastic in the same sense. We need to say we're going to cap the amount of plastic we can make, and then we're going to ratchet that down over time. Now, how do you ratchet it down? Well. Maybe some things don't need to be disposable, but also maybe use more recycled content. Maybe close the loop a little bit more. I was at a grand opening of a, of a facility locally here in Vernon a couple of days ago, and uh, it's going to be the country's biggest plastics recycling facility. And they're basically taking uh, material from people's curbs, the plastic, the PET plastic from people's curbs. PET number one, plastic water bottles. Yeah, soft drink bottles. And... They're uh, remanufacturing it into all sorts of new products. And every single one of those new products that they make is, is uh, plastic that did not have to be made from fossil fuels. From virgin material. Yeah. So we've got a few minutes here left. Are there any pieces of legislation coming up or campaigns that we need to keep an eye on? Yeah. I mean, moving away from, from plastic for a minute... Um, I think the next big frontier for recycling is really organic waste. So food scraps, yard trimmings. You know, we've done a really good job recycling bottles and cans over the last 30 years. But the the organic fraction of that, the, the like I said, the yard trimmings, the, the woody material, uh, the, the yard waste, that we have not done a good job recycling. And we have some really great models in some cities in the Bay Area, in Seattle, other places where they've set up these curbside recycling programs for food, for other organic waste. They make it into compost, which is a very valuable agricultural input, and it really closes the loop, makes healthy soils, uh, builds you know, sustainable agriculture. And we really need to expand that statewide. Carbon sequestration, exactly. healthier, healthier air to breathe. And Last question for you, the easiest one. Please tell our listeners how they can find Californians Against Waste and support your efforts. 
I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> so our website is cawrecycles.org. That's uh, Californians Against Waste, C-A-W, Recycles with an S. That's also our Twitter handle and our Facebook. And they post lots of amazing information on their Facebook. I am on there almost daily. Thank you, Nick Lapis, for being here today and to the staff of Californians Against Waste for all of your great work. And that is it for our show. Thank you for tuning into Eco Justice Radio. I want to thank Nick for coming onto the show. Eco Justice Radio is brought to you by SoCal 350 and KPFK. Executive producer Mark Morris, interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge, and original music by Javier Cadre. My name is JP Morris, and until next time, remember the power is yours. Oh, 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 oh